1: listen to the deal
0: listen to the deal on spotify hey hey it's conrad thompson and you're listening to 83 weeks with eric bischoff eric what's going on man how are you i'm doing great conrad it's a beautiful friday afternoon here i've got some
1: steaks thawing out a couple pork loins i'm gonna cook them reverse sear them on the big green egg it is going to be an amazing evening
0: I'm going to need you to explain to a lot of our listeners what a reverse seer is because i feel like we've got a lot of cooks out there who are listening who sort of fancy themselves as a billy badass on the big green egg but when you start dropping knowledge like a reverse seer, probably goes over a few heads in our listening audience
1: well you know what i'll make it really simple i, I promise i won't go off into the cooking weeds on this one you know typically when you and I'll use a steak for an example typically when someone sears a steak they they put the grill up really high and they just kind of flip it you know uh, they let it cook on a real high temperature on both sides for whatever two three minutes depending on how tender they want it to be and whatever you get you get you know whether it's medium rare or rare what a reverse sear is is it's just a more calculated way to achieve a much better result and here's how you do it You take an internal meat thermometer, you insert it right through the middle of whatever it is you're cooking, in this case, a steak, as an example. And I, I have my coals already hot, I've got my temperature at about 250 degrees, give or take. And I make sure that's nice and steady. I put my steaks on. And I watch that internal meat temperature and that's the, that's the key to this, you've got to know exactly what the internal temperature is of the meat you're cooking. And in my case, I like it up between 112 and 115 degrees, somewhere in there. Uh, the minute it hits, I'll call it 113 degrees, I immediately take those steaks off, I set them off to the side. And then I get the heat in my grill. I get it as hot as I can. I want an internal temperature on that grill of about 700 degrees. I mean, white hot. And then I take those steaks, I throw them back on the grill for about a minute and 30 seconds on each side. And that way I get absolutely perfect medium rare steaks every single time. You're not guessing, you're not getting close, I mean, they come off, I'll take a picture of it and you'll see just how perfect these steaks come off. And I just, I love the process and it's really, really easy.
0: So there you go. Who knew that Eric Bischoff knew a thing or two about the big green egg. And hopefully he knows a thing or two about nitro. July 29th, 1996 is what we're going to be covering today. And this is a pretty fun show. I know a lot of times we cover shows and some of our listeners say, yeah I'm just going to listen. And I would encourage you to go out of your way to watch this episode of Nitro. And, Eric, you did this for the first time in a long time. Was this the first time you actually sat down and watched this full show since 1996?
1: It is. It, it absolutely is. And even, you know, in, in July, July 29th of 1996, almost 20, what, two years ago, um, I didn't even watch the whole show then. You know, I watched parts of it on the monitor. I was involved on camera for parts of it. Uh, and there was so much going on backstage that I didn't really watch the show from beginning to end. And I typically didn't go back the, the, the next week and sit down and watch a show from beginning to end um, and do you know a, a, a post-produced uh, visual of it. So this really was the first time for me last night on twitch.tv forward slash 83weeks doing the watch along that I actually got to sit there like everybody else did and watch that show. I was just, I got so excited last night watching that with our, with our Twitch fans. It was,
0: it was a blast. Uh, Let's talk about this show though, Eric, but before we do, I guess we should remind everybody that Hulk Hogan is here, but not as the red and yellow. You guys are on the heels of bash at the beach, 1996, which we've covered in our archives where Hulk Hogan joined the NWO. At this point, do you really know what you have? Or, I mean, obviously the NWO is going to go on to be a fucking game changer. And for WCW short-term futures, clearly that's already the case here, but there would have been no way this early on. You would have known exactly what you had, right?
1: No, that's not true. I was a creative fucking genius. I was a visionary. You know, I, I had the ability to look two or three years into the future.
0: And <laughs> and, I, and,
1: you know, and I created this, you know, I was the architect of this phenomenal piece of business that changed the wrestling business forever. It, 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 no brag, just fact. But I knew exactly what we were doing every step of the way. Or not. <laughs> no, I didn't have, no, none of us did. We knew it was hot. You know, we knew we were coming off the turn, um, you know, of Hulk Hogan. We knew we had something really special, but it was still so new and, and no, to, to be, I was joking obviously previously, but no, I had no idea, you know, what we had at that point.
0: Talk to me about the decision to run this show at Disney MGM. You guys are outdoors for this show, and this is probably something you had in place before hogan turned heel because that's just a couple of weeks prior so it is sort of the end of this disney mgm era and it's certainly going to be by the end of the night and we'll get to there but you've sort of been critical of the crowds that you would draw at center stage and you said well at least here they weren't winos and hobos who were just looking for a warm place or a cold place to sit tell me about the difference in shooting it inside disney versus making this an outdoor event what extra expense and production that added and just what the look and feel you were looking for and how that was different
1: well before and I'm happy to do that but before we get to that I think we we should probably touch on why we shot this particular episode you know outside at Disney MGM Studios it wasn't by choice We had no choice but to to shoot the show there. Thank goodness that I had already developed a relationship, you know, two years previously with Disney MGM Studios, because had we not done that, I'm not really sure we would have had an episode on July 29th, 1996. Um, if you go back, you know, that was right around the time, you know, the, the Olympics in Atlanta were at their peak and there's so much television going on during the Olympics, literally every single television production truck was spoken for by, by the Olympics. Uh, we couldn't get a television production truck to save our lives. There were no freelancers available. Not only did I not have access to our typical Turner sports, uh, production staff, which we used, you know, pretty regularly for audio and, you know, inside of the truck. And, and in some cases, camera people, um, none of those people were available. They were committed to Turner Sports. So we had no staff, we had no production truck, and there were no venues that we could get in and out of. And let's not even think about what it was like to get, you know, airlines, you know, in and out of Atlanta or anywhere else in the southeast at that time. So for a lot of reasons, we had to go to Disney MGM Studios. Now, the advantage there was that Disney MGM Studios, where we were shooting, they had their own internal um, studio and they were already hardwired the, the, the we didn't need a production truck there was staff on on hand at disney that were disney staff that weren't freelancers and and sucked up into the uh, olympic vortex of freelance production staff so we had the ability to go there and get the show produced the downside is you know we had to do it outside because there was no sound stages available and that was a highly risky venture um, because of the potential of rain, it wasn't the best visual go, going to your question. Uh, I didn't really dig the visual, especially, you know, when we started the show because it was twilight and that never looks that great. You know, once it gets dark and you know, your lighting starts to make things pop a little bit more, it, it's better. But you know, the first portion of that show was in a daylight and it, it didn't look that great. Um, so there was a lot of downside to it, but the upside was at least we got a show produced. It didn't really cost us that, that much more to produce because typically when we would have to hire a production truck, they're very, very high. You had to hire a satellite to uplink, um, the show because it was live. We didn't have to hire a satellite truck. So there were a lot of things we didn't have to pay for. Um, but you know, we had to sacrifice the overall look of the show to a degree.
0: So let's talk about the open, you know, because that's really what stuck out to me is you guys are doing like a little backstage, almost like a fan cam. Um, and you see the attack of the NWO and they're attacking sting and slamming the trunk on him. I mean, it's one of the first times we see footage like that and very well done. Uh, who's sort of the director or the creative genius behind that? <laughs>
1: Um, well, that one was mine along with Craig Leathers. The idea was to, and this is one of the things, you know, people see that kind of stuff now they watch it during, you know, the attitude era in WWE and they kind of just take it for granted. You see it now all the time, but up and up until this show, you really didn't see action taking place in the backstage area of an arena or in a production or in a parking lot or any of that. You know, I was the first one. Nitro was the first show. A wrestling show to really take our storytelling from the confines of, you know, the 20, 20 by 20 ring or whatever it is inside the arena and continue our story into the, you know, the outer parameters of whether it was an arena or in this case, the Disney MGM studios. And it wasn't just, you know, walking, talking interviews that we see a lot of today. But it was a lot of the physicality in action. And I believe then, as I do, especially after watching the show back last night, it really, because it broke the, the paradigm, if, if you want to use a word that's overused, I guess, um, we, we did something that was so radically different, it kind of by default became believable. It just added to the reality of the way we were telling stories at a time, or at that time, uh, in a way that nothing else really could.
0: Yeah, it was, it was, uh, the air of, of believability was 100% legit. Um, let's talk about, you know, the first match that we see in the ring. It's hacksaw, Jim Duggan and Mike Enos. And this feels like almost like a tale of two WCWs because this is a little bit like WCW 94, 95 here. And not quite like the WCW 97 that we just saw in the last skit. Are you guys experiencing some growing pains, or going through a bit of an identity crisis at the time? Do you think?
1: No, I don't think so. I, I mean, look, we were growing into what we were about to become. It's not like we had a master plan, and and we woke up one day and said, "Okay, from now on, every story is going to be a reality based story. Every character is going to be a reality based, you know, harder edged type of character." we were still catering to a more traditional audience in some respects. Hacksaw Jim Duggan, you know, one of the things that I noticed and one of our Twitch uh, uh, fans last night pointed out, you know, Hacksaw was, you know, well past his prime and you know, was was critical, not in a negative way, but just in an obvious way, critical of Hacksaw Jim Duggan. And as I pointed out last night watching the show, but listen to the crowd. Right. The crowd is still reacting to Jim, to Hacksaw Jim Duggan in a very positive way. So it made it clear who is the babyface and who is the heel. Yes, we all know, you know, WCW went on in in some respects, not not totally to become a, an, an edgier type of product, but you still need that tradi- those traditional characters for the fans that just kind of dug that. And that was a perfect example. The fans were really behind AXA.
0: Talk to me a little bit about, you know, you're saying the fans were into it, or how you wrangled these fans in here and who whose sort of job was to do that. I mean, just the whole process for fielding a crowd here, because there are certain shots, like, even, you know, the, the hard cam through the the majority of the first match we're shooting four empty chairs right in the middle of the shot. And that doesn't feel like something that would happen in later years. Um, talk me through, you know, where the crowd was, who was sort of in charge of that, how you guys managed to fill it, just what that process was like.
1: Yeah. And and you're right. You know, empty chairs are just like the worst thing in the world to see for a producer or director. And and you try to avoid that at whatever cost. But in terms of whose job it was, uh, it was really David Crockett overseeing, or I should say not overseeing because they didn't work directly for David, but David Crockett working with uh, Disney staff because the Disney staff would wrangle a crowd throughout the day. They'd be giving out you know, flyers and letting everybody know and basically hard-selling people to come and check out the show. And keep in mind you know this is right after the you know the Hulk Hogan turn and we are certainly hotter in July of 96 than we were in July of 94 but WCW wasn't you know at its apex at this point so it's not like Oh my God! You're kidding me. Nitro's going to be there. Hulk Hogan's going to be there. We're going to go watch that. It was still, it was still a little tough to get a crowd there, and particularly this time at night because it was, you know, it's dinner time. People had been in the park all day, you know, walking around in the heat. It, it, it's it's a down period in the park. Um, people are getting ready to go watch the fireworks display that happens every night. So it wasn't easy. But to answer your question directly, was David Crockett working with Disney snap staff,
0: the rumor in innuendo is that TNA often used Jimmy Hart as like a theme park wrangler where he would go out and get people excited and shake hands and kiss babies and try to urge them into the impact zone. Is that what Crockett was doing here for WCW to try to fill seats?
1: No, Jimmy and you know, Jimmy probably helped as well, by the way, cause that's Jimmy's nature, but he wasn't overseeing the process. Um, he was just tagging in and doing whatever he could to help. Um, no, Jimmy literally was out there with his red and yellow megaphone, Jimmy Hart, you know, clown costume on with his megaphone and, you know, just hard selling the hell out of it for TNA. And he, again, he probably did some of that for us as well, just to, to support, um, David Crockett wasn't doing that. He wasn't the guy out there. He didn't dress up like a circus clown. He didn't have a megaphone. He wasn't out hard selling, but he was overseeing the process to make sure that we got as many people in there as we could.
0: So in an outdoor show like this, you know, we've talked about some of the logistical problems that you have as far as, you know, how you prepare for weather and things like that. But it's also something that's not shot when it's completely dark. How are you able to sort of make sure that from a production and lighting standpoint, you've got the right look? Do you try to set some of this up the night before? Because if you're setting it up during the day, you really have to sort of guess, right?
1: No, our lighting crews that we use were, were very, very experienced. And they knew based on the, I mean, it's like if you go into a studio photographer and and you're you're taking a certain kind of shot. You want a dramatic type of look, even though you're inside of a studio. They have light meters. They have all kinds of ways and means to make sure that the lights are what you want them to be. And they spend a lot of time during the day testing that uh, throughout the day. Uh, so that that part of it isn't hard. Uh, we didn't have to go in the day before and set up. We were able to set up day of.
0: So when you're when you're setting this up, most of this equipment. I would assume would be stuff that you guys would have brought or would some of this stuff, you know, would it, would there have been a situation where you have to say, Oh, I really wish we had so-and-so let's see if maybe Disney MGM has that, or do you just bring in all the trucks down yourself?
1: No, we, no, we did. We didn't have a lot of that stuff. We didn't own a lot of our own production equipment. Again, most of the production that was done for WCW shows, particularly, um, uh, the nitro shows were supplied to us by Turner, Turner sports, specifically Turner Broadcasting in general, but Turner Sports specifically. And because so much of that equipment was spoken for, uh, we had to to, to scrape up and, and wrangle as much equipment as we could find in Florida, which is another advantage of being in Florida because there was so much television production being done in and around Orlando because of the, the television studios that were there. Fortunately for us, we were able to wrangle the things that we didn't have or that Disney didn't have in-house, lighting, lighting, audio that type of thing
0: so when you're setting this up you know one of the things i've always been interested in is how those production costs sort of ebb and flow because obviously if you own the equipment you can have a better handle on what your fixed costs are relative to if you've got to sort of piece it all together because then these production companies they've really sort of got you over a barrel if you're especially if you're in a time crunch what would a show like this and I realize you don't have any sort of records in front of you, but what do you what would you guess a show like this would have cost for you guys to put to air? I would
1: say you know I remember the average probably about this time was around 250 to 300,000 an episode uh, depending on where we were sometimes it would skew higher for example, if you're you know if you're in Philadelphia or if you're on the East Coast somewhere where there's a strong union presence. Um it's one of the reasons why we didn't push too hard to try to get up into New York that often because then you would have to for example we could have our own cameraman J- Jackie Crockett was an employee of WCW or an independent contractor I should say but he was contracted specifically for WCW and we knew we had him each and every week. He was one of the few experienced cameramen that we had. Um but when if we would go to a union town Uh, we, even though we wanted to use Jackie because he had the expertise and he understood wrestling and how to shoot it, we would have to hire a union cameraman to shadow him. So we couldn't go into a union town with a non-union cameraman, for example. So in cases like that, you know, your, your budget is going up significantly. Um, but if we were going to a right for right to work state, for example, where, you know, which Florida was um and you didn't have the union issues uh it was it was not as expensive same was true with a lot of places throughout the southeast and the midwest um you don't usually run into that problem until you're on the west coast you're on the east coast or you know detroit chicago can be a little sticky but You're right. I mean, it would have been much better. It's one of the advantages I think WWE has is once they make the capital expenditure, they own the equipment, they buy the equipment that they want specifically for um, the shows that they're doing and what they're comfortable with um, as opposed to relying on freelance equipment. And sometimes you don't know what you're going to get. You're going to get a truck, but it may not be the truck you want or the truck your your production staff is familiar with. So it's always kind of a crapshoot.
0: It really does explain so much of just how Turner at times, you know, there's an expression in the South, uh, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. This is a fucking television company and you don't have access to equipment. Isn't that a little ridiculous?
1: Well, it is, but it, it, it's also, it, it kind of, you know, is a snapshot into. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. The psychology or the culture, I think is a better way to say it, right. of Turner Broadcasting at the time. You know, WCW and Nitro just wasn't a priority. The Olympics were. And, and I and I get that. I mean, I didn't take it personally. But it's a fact. You know, yes, this is a television show. But, you know, we had to go figure it out. Yeah, we love you guys. You guys are great. You're a part of the family. Yep, We love you. Go figure it out. We can't help you. By the way, don't try to hire any of our, any of our freelancers either because we need them. And, and I, that was the case from, you know, from the beginning until the very end, that was the case.
0: I know that this isn't something that a lot of our listeners enjoy, but I, I just can't help it because I was so fascinated with our conversation last week about advertising on the show and how Mars was at times looking for $2 CPM. And we sort of freestyled it based on what the ratings were and the, and the, the way they figured out The total persons who were watching would be around four and a half. That was essentially at the time, roughly a $9,000 spot for a 30 second commercial. But you mentioned a minute ago that putting on one of these shows was about 250,000. Do you have an idea or a sense of what the ad revenue would have been in this era for a Nitro? WCW's portion, Turner's portion.
1: No, I don't be well, WCW got an allocation. So, you know, again, it's a little complicated and I guess sometimes I don't do a great job of explaining it um, because I try to get through it as quickly as I can because I don't think it's interesting. But if you had a, a, a flow chart, if you will, of the Turner organization, you know, ad sales, New York or Turner ad sales was, its, was its own operating entity. Okay. And they would go out and they would sell advertising within Turner or within WCW or Netgeo or Cartoon Network or whatever they were selling at the time. That money would flow into Turner ad sales. They would get credit for that revenue. And then depending on, in our case, WCW, we would get an, we would get a, a, an allocation of a portion of that, a percentage of those ad sales. It wasn't 100% booked against our – as revenue for our company. It got booked as revenue for Turner ad sales and then an allocation commission, if you want to call it uh, a revenue share is another way to look at it. That's what got allocated to us. So um, can I tell you what the ad sales were for an entire two hour show back in 1996? No, I can't because I wasn't selling it. I wasn't negotiating those deals and I certainly don't recall line items from our budget. You know, back then, um, I could probably make some shit up and, and do a rough estimate, but I couldn't tell you honestly what it was.
0: I mean, if you had to guess, though, you know, at a cost of, say, two hundred fifty or 300000 WCW was not necessarily losing money on a Nitro, or were they?
1: Probably on the show itself we were, but again, because of the way WCW was structured with internal broadcasting, those shows were really – think of them –
0: it's lost leaders a little
1: bit. It's lost, yeah. They uh, lost leaders a lot, you know. And th- that had been the case, you know, from the time that I got there as a as an announcer, you know. The the shows WCW, the primary source of revenue, even in 1996 when things started getting stronger, you know, our principal sources of revenue were pay per views and house shows. W- once once the house show business started picking up, um, sure we got you know we had international distribution we you know we got some revenue from that turner home satellite we got a, we got an allocation from that um, but the majority of our revenue was driven by pay per views and house shows we didn't really have licensing and merchandising at the time i mean we had t-shirts and shit available whenever we went to a live event but until about this time we're talking to 96 so 93 94 95 early 96 even though we had t-shirts for sale at the arenas, there was nobody coming to the arenas. And they and half of them that did weren't really paying for the tickets. A lot of them were comped. So people would get there because it's free and they weren't, you know, apt to spend $10 or $12 a head on merchandise because they really weren't in that much into the product. You know, and this and, and this kind of goes back to, you know, the guaranteed, you know, salary kind of conversations that we have frequently there was no way to do a rev share or profit share kind of formula with talent when really the only revenue that we had that mattered was really off of pay-per-view up until now again it started to turn in 96 and obviously in 97 and 98 it got better and it was great but early on and we were we you know if you look at this, the traditional revenue model for a wrestling company and it's changed because of digital now. There's a, there's a I used to explain it to people this way. There's basically four legs on the chair. You have you know your, your television revenue, television licensing in the case of, of WWE. We didn't really have that. We had a, a, a smaller line item, which was our rev share from ad sales in New York. But we'll, we'll call that, for example, our license fee, even though it wasn't a license fee. We get a rev share from ad sales. So you've got television revenue. You've got pay-per-view revenue, you've got live gate, you know, arena based revenue, and you've got licensing and merchandising and, and we, you know, we'll throw pay-per-view into the live gate, for example, cause it's not really television, it's something different. Those are the four basic pillars of, of our revenue model back in, at that time. Because again, this was before digital mattered. Um, wCW in 1995, 1996 was operating really on two legs of a four-legged model, because just, we just didn't have the licensing and the merchandising that that really is a I think if you look at wWEs, I haven't looked at them in a long time, but if you look at their SEC reports, you know their their licensing and merchandising is a substantial part of their their net revenues every every quarter.
0: It's worth mentioning you guys are are way up from where you were. Um, In 95, you were averaging around 2,008 people per live show. Now we've got 3,502. Your gate has basically doubled from 20,668 up to 40,801. Buy rates are oddly down a little bit as is pay-per-view revenue, but the house shows are up. What would you chalk that up to? I mean, obviously we're taking a snapshot here of July versus July where attendance is up. 69 percent your gates up 101 percent but your buy rates are down a little bit why do you think that is
1: you know i don't know you know you sent you sent that information over to me earlier and i looked at it and i was you know thinking back about what was going on at that time um i I, you know it's hard for me to it's hard for me to go back and look at what was going on in the pay-per-view business in 1996. I could take a wild-ass guess, and that's all it is, is a wild-ass guess, but it was about, you know, we started we started increasing the, pay- the number of pay-per-views every year. WWE was increasing the number of pay-per-views every year. I'm not sure in 1996 if we had already hit 12 or not, and I'm not sure where WWF was in 96, but I think... As the number of pay-per-views started expanding, because if you remember going back to 92, 93, probably 94, you know, WWE had four pay-per-views a year. WCW had four pay-per-views a year. And because pay-per-view was one of the only areas that I could really increase in a significant way, increase our revenue. That's the reason why I started we started, we moved it up to the six and we moved it to eight and we moved it to 10 and we moved it to 12 somewhere, somewhere along that timeline. Uh, because it was such an important um, revenue stream for us so my guess my wild ass guess is as we increased the number of them the buy rates for each of them probably diluted a little bit
0: well there's no guessing what you guys are doing in the ratings you guys are clearly in the driver's seat here the july 8th nitro did a 3.5 raw only did a 2.5 so you beat the shit out Mm -hmm. of them uh, the next week on July 15th, you do a 3.4 raw does a 2.6 again, monster win. And on July 22nd, ratings are down quite a bit. You go from a 3.4 down to a 2.6 and raw does a 2.2. And, you know, I've always wondered, cause we we haven't really talked about this that much. Raw didn't have a replay. Nitro did have a replay do you think, and obviously when you're talking about just total persons, clearly it helped, but in your, your battle, do you think that hurt you at all to have a replay?
1: It did because it gave you know fans of Nitro, and by, at, at that point they weren't really hardcore committed fans. You right. know, th- those people who kind of uh, watched both shows, f- the majority of them were still WWF loyal. You know, WWF had been around for two generations or three generations at that point. They had a much stronger foothold and a much more loyal, and I'm talking about generationally loyal, meaning there were grandfathers and fathers and children who grew up watching, you know, WWF, particularly on the East Coast, but which is the densest part of the television audience, the East and the West Coast. So there were a lot of fans, even though they were digging Nitro and they were starting to sample us and we were migrating some of them over to be more loyal to to WCW. The vast majority of them were still brand loyal to WWF. And what we did, and it was, you know, it was necessary. It wasn't a choice that we wanted to make, but we gave them an option. Well, you can watch Raw and then watch the replay of Nitro. And unfortunately, that that did have an adverse impact on our, you know, live show ratings to a degree – you know, I don't think anybody really calculated how much of a degree, um, because it wasn't, you know, the type of thing that we were analyzing, should we, or shouldn't we, we were mandated to do it.
0: Well, something that you guys were not mandated to do, but you did a great job with has given us a phenomenal match right early on in nitro here. You know, we just talked about maybe a less than stellar match with Enos and, and, um, Hacksaw Duggan, but now we've got the horseman with mongo i guess we should say uh, we should temper expectations a little but rick flair chris benoit and mongo on one side and on the other side man all your big stars you've got lex luger you've got uh sting the macho man a lot of talent right here early on in the show is the strategy here putting this match on early i mean obviously we know what's coming later but this is also to get those eyeballs off raw and onto nitro early right
1: Yeah. I mean, that was part of it. And and part of it was storyline, you know, part of it we knew. um, And again, you know, I don't have the format. I wish I had the format of the show. And obviously I watched the show less and I could probably work backwards and figure it out. But, you know, the other thing that I noticed, I'm going to get off track for a second, is not only the quality of the talent in the ring. I mean, we had our top guns in the ring, obviously. And we had them on early because we wanted, as you pointed out, to to grab as much of the audience as we could, but we also wanted to set up that hot angle that, that immediately not followed this and it actually interrupted it. And I think the, the idea was not, I think I know the idea was to have our top stars because this was really the beginning of the NWO versus WCW here. This was the, you know, this was the shot across the bow, the biggest one uh, at that time. And, the idea was for, in order for this to be as believable, this is the show that we want to – interrupt or this is the match that we want to interrupt, and we want to interrupt it with our top stars. Going back to something that I noticed last night that I don't think we'll probably ever see again um, because of today's television environment is that match was a long match. Absolutely. I mean, before the shit hit the fan, and we, I, th- I was watching that last night. I think, my God, we must be at about 20, 22 minutes. You know and in today's environment because there's so many going back to the ad sales business and what's going on today not only in in a in a, in a one-hour show do you have you know six commercial breaks um they're probably a minute or a minute and a half longer now than they were back then you you would never i don't think we'll ever see unless somebody makes special you know arrangements you know with the network I don't think you'll ever see a a match as long as this again on free TV.
0: Yeah. As you said, there's going to be some exceptions every now and again, raw will put out some sort of iron man or something like that. But those are, you know, not just a random Monday. There's something that they build too. Let's talk about, uh, something you guys were doing pretty well. And that's the way you were sort of explaining that Hall and Nash would be around because they're not being advertised for as, as wrestling. Uh, at these house show events, but they're still appearing there and there's some, some careful wording to say that sting and Lex Luger will be ready to accept a match if they should be challenged or something like that. So you're sort of teasing that and Nash are going to be there and that sting and Luger are looking for a fight, but you're not necessarily saying that they're wrestling and you're trying to keep the thread of, they don't technically work here, so they don't have to be here. It's a, whether or not they're going to show up, right?
1: Exactly, exactly. You know, and again, it had not been done before. Um, typically, you know, there was so much emphasis, you know, prior to to this era, and you you know push the match, push the push the match, advertise it, talk about it on TV two weeks in advance, that type of thing when you're building, you know, for a house show. And I, I wanted to go the other way. If we wanted to keep the the premise of this story, which is these guys are coming into WCW because they wanna they want to disrupt it. They wanna tear shit up. They wanna make people pay for not making them the stars or giving them the respect that they should have had when they were in WCW, you know, earlier before going to WWF. That was the premise of the story. And if that premise was going to, you know, have a sense of believability and we were gonna be able to create anticipation, we had to let the audience know that fuck, there's a chance these guys are gonna show up and tear shit up. The minute we would have built it as God, Kevin Nash is going to take on Sting and Lex Luger. There goes your illusion.
0: Let's talk about the way they appeared on, on some of the other television shows, because we haven't really talked about this before, but it's one of the better things that you did in this era. in My opinion, Uh, by the way, I'm watching the show in the background right now. And Jimmy Hart is sprinting out, trying to get the cameraman's attention. I guess we should talk about that. Jimmy trying to get the attention of the cameraman and the guys in the ring Whose idea is that? Because that's pretty clever.
1: Um, you know, I don't, you know, there's who knows whose idea it was. There was a bunch of people involved in creative at the time. I didn't, you know, I watched it back last night and I, I didn't like it uh, at all. Uh, because Jimmy, you know, just the way he dresses, the mouth of the South character that had been around for so long. And don't get me wrong. You know, Jimmy Hart had a lot of fans, still does to this day. He's an amazing guy that's been around the business for a long time and has a a solid fan base as a result of that. And he certainly did back then. But just looking at him,
0: you know, it's just too fucking cartoonish for me. It's hard to take him seriously, you're saying.
1: It is hard. It is hard. I, You know, looking back, I wish I would have, I would have, not somebody else, I wish I would have chosen somebody, you know, that had more authority. Even if it was Doug Dillinger, even if it was – you know, somebody that you wouldn't typically see, somebody that wasn't even known, you know, would have been better than, you know, a kind of gimmicky cartoon character that that Jimmy Hart had at that time. so that was that was a flaw that i that I picked on. but you know, I talked about it last night on Twitch. I was it was a flaw that I wish you know somebody would have had the for me. I wish I would have had the foresight to see that it could have been better. If it was somebody else.
0: So when they go, when the cameraman does decide to go back and check on, you know, whatever Jimmy Hart saw that alarmed him, he sees Scotty Riggs and Marcus Alexander Bagwell left laying as Kevin Nash and Scott Hall stand over him with bats. And, um, then Ray Mysterio tries to come out of the truck or the trailer and attack him, And of course he tries to splash Nash and Nash just catches him, throws him on his shoulder, lawn darts him. In one of the more famous scenes, and then the guys sprint away to their limousine and they see macho man, Randy Savage, hop on the limo and go for a ride. And
1: how fucking nuts was that? Are you watching that right now?
0: Yes. It's insane. And it's been written over the years. And I think even Scott hall has said that that wasn't the original plan, but the limo didn't take off. So macho just sort of improvised. And now he's along for the fucking ride.
1: Is that the way you remember it? Absolutely. I mean, that's Randy. That is classic Randy Savage. And I'm watching this last night and I'm thinking risk management in Turner Broadcasting. Now, this is before they were sticking their nose in our business too much. But I can only imagine if I would have had a Turner Broadcasting suit. If this would have been 1998, they would have soaked me in gasoline and set me on fire for, for that move. I mean, Randy could have easily gotten killed doing that, but that was Randy. He just felt it in the moment, and it was cool as shit. I mean, that wasn't a stunt. There was nobody dressed up like Randy. It wasn't a, you know, we didn't edit it in such a way that, you know, Randy jumped up there and then we replaced it with a dummy that was dressed just like Randy and shot it from a distance. There was no TV gimmick going on there. That was just live, real shit improv as it was happening, and it was awesome. I mean, I watched that last night and I was just shaking my head, laughing at how good that was.
0: When we come back from commercial, we see woman crying over, uh, Arne Anderson, who has clearly been attacked. He's holding his arm. He's grimacing. He's in pain. We've got some trainers and EMTs checking on buff Bagwell's knee. And of course the bat is laying right there. Eddie Guerrero is checking on Ray Mysterio. This is a phenomenal scene and it shows you know, just how hot this angle is going to get. And they're even saying, Hey, we need to get an ambulance and a fucking fire truck pulls into the scene. It's just sheer chaos and pandemonium backstage. Is this scene a Kevin Sullivan booking decision? Because we've heard for years that Kevin Sullivan was the king of quote unquote booking heat. Does this have his fingerprints on it? No. No. No,
1: this was more Craig Leathers, myself. Kevin was certainly a part of it. I don't mean to dismiss Kevin's contributions here. Um, but this, this, you know, the NWO stuff was probably more mine than anybody's. The good stuff and the bad towards the end. Um, but early on, this was my baby. This was my baby when we... You know, the you know the month before or whenever it was or the couple weeks before when we launched it, you know the 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 overall idea of it getting Hulk to turn heel was was you know I'm not trying to put myself over but just to to put it in context because we know fucking context is king baby. Um, this one was the one that I oversaw. Now in terms of laying this scene out uh, and breaking it down, I would probably tip my hat more to Craig Leathers and David Crockett, um, in terms of the way this thing was executed than, than I would for myself or, or Kevin Sullivan. I think we told him what we wanted. I, I knew what I wanted the scene to look like, but in terms of how well it was executed, that was really Craig Leathers, Neil Pruitt, David Crockett.
0: It's quite the scene, man. And there's been lots of rumor and innuendo over the years that this caused such a panic on site that people were legitimately calling nine one one. Is that true? What can you tell us about, uh, how people reacted to this on site?
1: It is true. And it was, you know, something that I didn't think about. I mean, and I'm, it's not like I was sleeping at the wheel or too busy or whatever. It's just, I, I I never would have anticipated that you could do something on a wrestling show that was so believable that people sitting at home would call the cops in the local market. But that's exactly what happened. And now we knew, you know, we had ambulances standing by, we had certain things, David Crockett had, had arranged and and David had a great staff of other people too. It wasn't just David Crockett. It was a team effort, but they had, you know, we had ambulances standing by, we had paramedics that we wanted to use and they were all real paramedics too, by the way, these weren't actors dressed up as paramedics and gimmick, you know, ambulances like we see so often nowadays. But, um... So all that we knew was going to come in. We we played we we paid for it. <laughs> we we signed the contracts and paid for it. But we also had cops showing up that were not part of the scheduled, you know, paramedic team. And we got word right away from Disney Management, you know, police are on their way. And I'm thinking, what do you mean the police are on their way? <laughs> the fuck are they on their way for? And sure enough, we had Orlando cops showing up on, on the set because people were, you know, people called 911. They thought there was a murder going on backstage because they'd never seen anything like it. It was so believable that, you know, it just didn't look like a wrestling angle.
0: And even to sell the realism, they unmask great Mysterio and he covers his face with his hands. But that really gets over the seriousness of the situation and to see ambulances on TV on a wrestling show are not that common, especially in this era, the, even, the I
1: mean, I mean I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, go ahead. I was going to say, I mean, it was, all, it, it was everything. You know, you, you, you didn't see ambulances. You didn't see this type. Nobody had ever seen this type of scene in wrestling before. It had never been done before. You may have seen something kind of in a way similar, but not executed like this and produced as well. The, the thing, though, that I thought made it ensure tearing off the mask and Tony pointed it out. You know, I mean, not only did they take off Ray's mask because in real in a real situation, if his skull was cracked, you know, they're not going to be able to treat it with a mask on. Right. And it was a little detail that made it really believable. And there was a lot of those little details that made this work. But I think the one big detail that I was, again, looking back at it, you know, Chris Benoit, Arne Anderson, I mean, Miss Elizabeth crying, you know. Uh, woman, you know, I mean, everybody broke character and they were so into the moment and they made it believable. They didn't have some 22 year old jackoff writing a script saying, okay, this is what you know, some guy that's never been laid, never been in a fight. And all of a sudden is, you know, a writer for a wrestling show, which is usually the case nowadays. You know, th- they knew what the scene was going to be. They knew what the message was that we wanted to try to create, but they improved it. They had the, the they relied on their talent and their instincts to make it believable. And because the scene was so believable, it allowed them to really get into the character. And I mean, they literally became actors and actresses in this scene, like legitimately good ones. You uh, know, across the board. I mean, a little detail. When Sting got into the ambulance with Randy Savage, where moments before they were beating the dog shit out of each other in the ring. I think it was Randy that was in the ambulance. It might have been somebody else. But wh- whoever Sting was working with in the ring, maybe it was Lex, wh- whoever he was working with in the ring, he actually jumped in the ambulance to go to the hospital with him. Completely broke character, threw Kay Fabe out the fucking window. I mean it was a very believable moment. And I think the performances of the talent probably as much as you know, the rest of it all mattered – in a great deal I think the performances of almost everybody in all of those scenes were off the charts. Great.
0: Do you think that from a fear of someone clicking back and forth when there's such a, a long stretch here during the aftermath, are you worried that people might be changing the channel? No.
1: No, because it was so believable. It was something that had never been seen before. Everybody was sucked into it. The quality of the scene was so good. The performances were so great. The story was so powerful. Uh, The the thought of people clicking back and forth never crossed my mind.
0: What I was going to say a minute ago, you know, when we were talking about the era of believability, and clearly we've got that here with bats with the NWO and these guys selling everything the way they are is whenever they would appear on, like, WCW Saturday night, there would be a little promo played, and it would say, the following has been paid for by the New World Order. Whose idea was that?
1: That was really... Uh, Craig Leathers, I will say, and Neil Pruitt worked together on that. Um, it was... I I would say... God, I, you know... I would say probably more probably to say more Neil Pruitt than Craig Leathers, but, but I, it was close. It was really them. I mean, they, they knew what we wanted to do. I was working closely with Craig on the look and the feel in the vibe you know the fact that we wanted it to be black and white. I didn't want to shoot them in color. You know in the the NWO promos. I wanted them to have that grainy film noir look. You know that that had never been done before. I didn't want them to look overproduced. I wanted them to feel like they were shooting them th- themselves on a three hundred dollar camera from Best Buy. That was the idea behind it. And once I gave them the general idea of them, meaning Craig and Neil Pruitt, they went to work and came back with specifically what they ended up looking like. And And I think the the, the billboard, you know, this brought to you by the NWO, I think that was Neil Pruitt.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's his voice. L- let's talk about, you know. The no, next- but I mean, I think it was his idea. Sure. I know it's his
1: voice, but I think that was his idea.
0: Um, a lot of people remember that we've just covered the the hog wild pay-per-view which is the next pay-per-view after this but the one that we're really building towards outside of that spectacle because wouldn't you agree that Sturgis while it had a lot of great matches it was really just helping you get to the next one I mean it was a spectacle and it was a happening and it was something to see but from a storyline standpoint to me war games was a much bigger like destination than Sturgis beyond you know, the, the cool visual and obviously Hogan spray painting the bell. Do you disagree on that?
1: No, I agree a hundred percent. Sturgis was really all about the event and branding ourselves along with that event, as we talked about last week with advertisers and, and viewers as well, because, you know, Sturgis has an edge. It has a mystique. It does till this day. There'll be 400 to 500,000 people there uh, in Sturgis this time next week. So it's it's still definitely a cool event like Mardi Gras is to a degree. And we wanted people to think of Monday Nitro and Sturgis kind of in the same thought. But from a storyline point of view, I agree with you 100%. It was, Sturgis was not nearly as important as War Games.
0: And War Games is the next big pay-per-view. It's going to be September 15th, and we know it's going to be the Horseman versus the NWO, or at least that's what Wade Keller would say was supposed to happen and the plan was for sean waltman to be the fourth man on the team uh assuming that they could get some of these legalities cleared up and we talked about the idea that they even tried to debut him at the end of Hogwild, but that doesn't actually happen something else that Keller reports and it is topical since we just saw randy savage take a ride is that randy savage and hawk found themselves getting into a legitimate fight in japan a couple of weeks prior to this and allegedly as crazy as this sounds It was because Macho Man ate a piece of Hawk's pizza. This sounds make-believe, but allegedly, according to the torch, Hawk got the better of the fight. Did you hear about a dust-up with uh, Hawk and Randy Savage?
1: I was aware of it. Um, I didn't pay much attention to that kind of stuff. It didn't happen under my watch. Um, And usually those kinds of things were, you know, they'd happen. It'd be over with, and the guys would be in a bar having a beer, you know, laughing it off the same night. So I did, it just didn't register on my Richter scale.
0: Why was, um, well, maybe why is the wrong thing, but I, I just can't help myself. Why wasn't Hogan involved in the, the attack in the back? I mean, we know we're not done with the, with the show, but the initial attack with the bats was that, was that by design that he wasn't there for that part, but. We could introduce him into the conversation later. Talk me through the exclusion of Hogan being a part of the gang.
1: The original idea, and, you, you know, you have to kind of go back and explain Hogan's, the structure of his contract. And I know that's going to be the subject of its, of its own podcast at some point. But I believed, you know, from the time I signed Hulk, that he was a less is more kind of a character. And that's why when we originally signed him in 94, he was only scheduled for four pay per views, only scheduled for a couple of televisions leading into those pay per views. I didn't want Hulk on a full time basis because he would get overexposed. Either by default or design, he would end up getting overexposed. When the NWO became a reality, the original thought going back to day one was that he was kind of the godfather. You know, Scott and Kevin were the muscle. He, he he was, he was, he was the godfather. He was pulling the string. He was the shot caller. Um, if you will. So the idea of not having him involved, wasn't for any other reason than when this thing originally started. I wanted to, be judicious with how we exposed him and used him and kind of keep him in that Godfather role.
0: Well, I mean, he is in the promo that is going to air a little later. One of those black and white promos, uh, but we don't see him on the actual live event. The main event is unbelievably the giant who is the world champion, Jimmy Hart's there in tow with the big gold belt. And he's going to choke slam the ever loving dog shit. of <laughs> Craig the hammer Valentine. Um, Greg Valentine, Giant as your main event, feels like a different era, does it not? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) that one took me down a notch. Well, what didn't take you down though is just the the response you got from this angle, because allegedly, and Scott Hall has been on record as saying this, he heard the Associated Press called the office, thinking it was a shoot, and they were looking for a statement from WCW. And according to the rumor and innuendo, this big fight is what led to the end of the Disney relationship. Can you speak to any of those allegations or stories? No,
1: that's not true at all. I mean, I'll, the, the last part of your question isn't true. I'll go to the first part. Yes, we got calls from AP because of the police reports, because of what was going on locally. Um, yeah, we did get calls to the office because it looked like a mass murder. I mean, it looked, it, it looked like a terrorist attack. And the way it was portrayed and it was live, it did not look like anything related to a wrestling show. So, yeah, we did get we did get a lot of calls in terms of the, the Disney MGM studios. Quite honestly, we just didn't need them anymore. Going back to, you know, a couple of podcasts ago when we were talking about early, you know, 94 and shooting at center stage. And the reason I went to Disney in the first place is because we couldn't sell out arenas. Not only not sell them out, we couldn't get enough people to show up for a television taping to be able to turn the lights on. You know, our cameraman, you know, would have had to shoot this shit with a little flashlight taped to their camera, you know, so that nobody could see that the entire arena when we were doing TV tapings, primarily for our syndicated shows, um, there was nobody there. That's why we went to Disney. Now, by this time in '96. You know, we were drawing we were drawing 4,000 people at, at house shows with no television. And if we were going to shoot a, a syndicated show, for example, we had no problem getting, getting an audience there. But it took us a couple of years to get there. Once we got there, there was no advantage financially or any other way of shooting at Disney MGM. So this incident did not put a nail in the coffin of the relationship with Disney MGM. It's just that we grew out of the need to shoot there.
0: The um, the, the scene where Jimmy Hart is sort of breaking character, wink, wink, at the end of the night, saying that his whole life is professional wrestling and, you know, he he's not going to stand for this and maybe he spent too much of his career lying uh, because now no one can believe him even when something like this is happening. And then you had the scene where Bobby Heenan sort of confronts you, which sort of shows that And you haven't really revealed it at this point on air that you're really running things, that you're really the boss. And he's saying, you know, can you guarantee my safety? Can you guarantee me security? And he said, I can't guarantee you anything. And he walks off all that really airs. I mean, adds to the realism. Does it not?
1: Absolutely. It does. And again, watching it last night on Twitch, um, Bobby's performance was, it was real, it was off the charts. I mean, it was he, he, we couldn't have hired an A list actor in Hollywood to execute that performance any better than Bobby did. In fact, I will say, as well as Bobby did, because everybody, you know, they've known Bobby as such an over the top smart ass. You know, he was so great at what he did. So when Bobby broke character, which he really did here. And he was talking passionately because he wasn't really a fan of this, by the way. Um, so there was a little bit of shoot in him here. Um, Why didn't he like uh, it? What didn't he like? It, because it was chaos. you know. It, 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 I'm not saying he was like against it or he bitched about it or anything like that. But it was inconsistent with what Bobby had grown up doing. He wanted more paint
0: by numbers a
1: more paint by numbers, a little bit more control, a little bit more of the typical formula, yeah. you know, that everybody else had been doing for years and years and years. That's what Bobby knew. Right. And, and this was something that was so, you know, 180 degrees from that that he wasn't really comfortable with it. He didn't believe it in it, but he didn't bitch. He didn't, you know, complain or anything like that. But there was just enough. It's like when Ric Flair, and again, I don't want to talk about myself here, but it's one of the reasons why when Ric Flair and I were working together, and Rick was cutting promos on me, you know, after we had come out of the legal issues that he and I had at the time, it was really easy for Ric Flair to cut a very believable promo on my ass, because there was a lot of that resentment and and you know, I don't want to call it hatred, but I'm sure there was a fair amount of that as well. Rick didn't have to have to have to create a really good promo. There was a lot of that, that he really felt. And that's the same thing that was happening in this scene with Bobby. In this scene, Bobby was, part of it was real to him. The moment was just as real to him as it was some of the the performers backstage, the wrestlers backstage. The reason that they were able to get tears in their eyes, the reason it became so natural natural for them to improv breaking character is because the scene felt real. And the same thing was true when Bobby confronted me. You know, hats off to Jimmy Hart. You know, Jimmy Hart breaking character, man, you talk about swimming upstream. Here's a guy that was, you know, spent 30 years in the business at that point. And now we're asking him to do something that's totally inconsistent with all the, with the rule book that he has lived by since the day he walked into the business, but it made it believable because nobody ever seen it before.
0: Yeah. He's a gimmick in half. And when all of a sudden he's not, it's like, Hey, wait a minute. Holy shit. This Holy real. shit. This yeah. must be real. Great stuff, man. And the proof is in the pudding. Nitro does a 3.0. Raw does a 2.1. When you see the rating come out, you've got to be excited, right? Sure. I mean, of course, I don't want to dismiss it. Of course
1: we were, you know, we were still new to the role here. It was, you know, affirmation that the NWO idea that we were still, it was still, it was, there was still gift wrapping on it. We hadn't completely taken it out of the box yet. And it was just another affirmation that this is going to be, you know, something really big for us. We had no idea how big, as you and I discussed earlier, but we knew that we had something.
0: Did you get any feedback from Disney about any of this? Because, you know. A little bit. You know, I had been working with Disney for two
1: years at this point, and they trusted us. You know, here's what's funny. You know, we talked about, you know, if I wouldn't have had a relationship with Disney, we might not have had an episode on July 29th, 1996. But had I not been working with Disney p- the, the prior two years, we wouldn't have been able to shoot outdoors. When we first went to Disney, I mean, we had a list of things we could do and we couldn't do. And the list of things we couldn't do was way longer than the things we could. You know, they didn't want wrestlers in the park. If they weren't shooting, if they weren't you know scheduled to be in production on the soundstage, they needed to get on a bus – and go back to their hotel. <laughs> we had buses waiting outside of the soundstage, and the <laughs> buses had they had paper. The windows were papered because they didn't want the, the guests to see the wrestlers in the bus.
0: Hang on, hang on, They
1: were like circus
0: animals. Hang on, hang on. You're, you're you're glossing over some stuff here that's hard for me to process. You're saying to me, I, I, I get okay. They don't want Sting walking around the park. It, it could be a distraction. But Steve Borden is not allowed to walk around, like not in the gimmick. I'm saying, you know, shorts, flip flops, whatever he normally wears. They didn't want him walking around. No, he could have, if, if he would have been in civilian clothing and
1: not dressed up as a wrestler, Sure. yes, he could have, what they didn't want was wrestlers who were at, cause we were at the soundstage from, you know, generally nine o'clock in the morning, 10 o'clock in the morning till six o'clock at night. And and shooting all day long. What they didn't want was wrestlers in in costume in character, killing time, you know, wandering then, wandering around the park. Yeah, I that's what you. they didn't want. Now, if they wanted to come back with their families later on, that was fine. But they didn't want them walking around, just checking shit out or going to the commissary in between shots.
0: Well, okay. I can't help it. I got to ask for them to have a rule. That means there was an incident, right? <laughs> who who
1: no, it that, up? That, that, no, that was the rule going in. Okay. The very one, when, when, and I don't know that you and I have ever talked about this, but I, it, it's relevant. I think in this podcast, when the decision was made to go to Disney or, or to attempt to move our production down to Disney, MGM studios, um, uh, we had two choices. It was either Universal or Disney. And I wanted it to be Disney because I wanted to brand WCW and the Worldwide Show specifically, because that was our primary syndicated show at that time. I wanted that that hot open. I wanted that helicopter shot, you know, flying over the Disney MGM studios and seeing the water tower with the Mickey Mouse ears. I wanted to brand WCW with Disney. That was my ultimate goal. And I didn't really have the same I mean I could have done it at Universal but it wouldn't have been the same Disney was a much bigger brand at that time than Universal so I, that was my first choice and when David Crockett and I went there we had our very first meeting with with Disney executives and the, the I should let me rephrase it I had my first meeting or David and I did because David was instrumental in this we had our first meeting with a guy by the name of Bob Allen Bob Allen was the Disney executive who was in charge of all of the television production on, on Disney-MGM properties. He was a young guy, super, super cool, loved wrestling. He was a big fan of the idea. Um, but his bosses and the rest of the people at his level within the park, because there were, there were other executives that needed to be convinced, they were not – They had, they did not want wrestling anywhere near Disney because wrestling had that perception. It was violent. You know, it was, it was guys beating each other with boards. It was blood. It was, you know, everything that Disney MGM theme park isn't is what they perceived wrestling to be. So when David and I convinced Bob Allen from Disney to pitch it to the group, Bob asked David and I to come to the meeting. And we did, and we sat in a um, a television studio that wasn't being used, uh, and the office portion of it. And I literally was sitting in a, in the chair by myself in the middle of the room, and I had like six guys to my left in a in a in a three sided square, I guess. Six or eight guys to my left, four or five guys out in front of me, and three or four guys to my right. I had like ten or twelve other executives there, and Bob Allen was there to support us. And everybody in that room was kind of looking at their watch, you know, checking their pagers. (laughs) Just, you know, they they wanted to be anywhere else but listening to me pitch why WCW should produce their shows on the Disney MGM lot. But we got it done. And part of the agreement was okay. We're going to let you do this, but you need to be confined to the soundstage because we don't want guests in the park to see anything that has anything to do with wrestling on the Disney MGM lot.
0: Let's talk a little bit about. I can't help it. I really want to. I really want to know. There's got to be something somewhere. A fun wrestlers wandering around story you know there's even stories about guys and we won't say any names but there's stories about guys when tna was down there showing up in the middle of the night and showing their ass demanding that they have park access when they're clearly shut down and etc etc wrestlers have been known to party and have a good time no shenanigans that you recall the entire None. time you guys did anything? None. None. And let, before, you
1: know, we'll talk about that uh, and I'll, I'll answer that question in just a minute in more detail. But going back to, now that was, you know, the, the setup that I just gave you for the very first, you know, television tapings for the syndicated show at Worldwide, we had that long list of things we couldn't do, which right. is three times longer than the things we could, right? But by 1996, now. We were able to, because we had developed a relationship with not only Bob Allen, who was principally the guy that got us involved and, and got us through the door, but now everybody else was on board and very supportive. Because here's here's what's interesting. What Disney did in the very beginning in our first television tapings, because they would, you know, they would you know they'd wrangle the audience for us, right? That was all Disney people that did that and they get, you know, four or 500 people or whatever it was into the soundstage, but they would also do research when people would come out, they would, you know, get a read on because Disney wanted to know if this is a fucked up idea or not, right? They right. wanted to get feedback from their guests and the, the, I would get copies of that feedback and their, their guests loved it. I mean, it was one of the more popular shows on the lot. So we got a tremendous response. Everybody handled themselves professionally. We didn't have anybody showing their ass. We didn't have anything negative going on. And for the most part, most of the guys handled themselves right because they enjoyed it. And when I say enjoyed it, it was still work. But the conditions were so much better for them because they'd be, you know, they show up. First of all, we shot a lot of TV in a short period of time which freed up their free time schedule, right? They weren't traveling every week because we'd shoot eight weeks of TV in four days. So, you know, the downside of that, we all know about, we had a bunch of shit that we had to expose, and there was all kinds of adverse things that went along with it. But from a talent's point of view, wait a minute, I get to go to Orlando, I'm going to shoot eight weeks of TV in four days or something like that, and oh by the way, they're gonna put us up at this Marriott hotel not too far from the Disney property. And, oh, by the way, we're gonna have a cookout every night. <laughs> it 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 really and, and and I can bring my wife and my kids or my girlfriend or whatever, boyfriend, whatever. So it it and and they were done by six o'clock at night. They weren't driving from you know Tuscaloosa to you know Asheville, you know, with four other guys in a rent a car it wasn't bad duty for them and everybody handled it really well so there really were no incidents but by 1996 because the the park guests had such o- an overwhelmingly positive reaction to WCW because our talent handled themselves really well there were no incidents at all uh, over the course of a couple of years by that time when i called disney and said look we want to shoot our show outside where everybody can see it we had they were they couldn't wait to do it and we were also able to take, you know, we could take Vader, for example, in this full gimmick. And if we wanted to take him over to the Magic Kingdom and, and have him shooting a promo in front of an iconic piece of Disney, you know, property, we were now able to do that. And we did it quite often, but not until, you know, a year or so later when they had gotten really comfortable with us.
0: Well, I can't wait to talk about how comfortable you are. Explaining Glacier. <laughs> I knew you thought I was going to let you off the hook here. I saved the best for last. This is one of those episodes where we see a long vignette of a very nice man dressed up and kicking at the camera with a ridiculous couple of set props behind him. I need to know everything about this. The idea where this was shot, what the goal was. And and realistically, as soon as you introduce the NWO, this thing is deader than shit is it not i think it was dead from the
1: get-go whether we would have introduced nwo or not you know there's no way to to know that it's just my gut i think the idea was probably two years too late you know let's start with why the fuck did i do that right (laughs) the the idea was Again, kind of like we talked about last week, you know, my goal was to find sponsorship. My goal was to find licensing opportunities. My goal was to fix the two legs on the stool that we didn't have. I didn't want to be solely dependent upon pay per view revenue. And even by this time, you know, house show revenue still wasn't huge, but it was a lot better than it had been. We needed to build up other revenue streams. And my thinking, good, bad, or Whatever was that uh, okay, let's create some characters that will be attractive to video game producers because back then that's where the money was. That's where licensing opportunities could have could have happened. That's where sponsorship could have happened. That's where merchandising could have happened had it worked. Unfortunately, the timing was fucking horrible and the idea may have been fucking horrible. You know, I, I think the idea wasn't horrible. It was just horribly late.
0: It was fucking horrible fuck you <laughs> we'll see you next week right here hey, is this the longest you and i've ever spoken without motherfucking each other you know what i took
1: my dog no i did i did say fuck you once but it was kind of i don't even count was, that it, one but it was it was in a loving kind of way it wasn't in a mean way but i actually took my dog out and put her in the kennel mickey because, I mean, this is a dog. I've told you this before. She will literally attack an 800-pound grizzly bear. This dog has no fear. She does not know what fear is. But when I start yelling at you or you start yelling at me, she just curls up in a corner and looks at me like, what the fuck? So now I take her out and I put her out in the kennel whenever you and I tape a show because I'm figuring we're going to go at each other. And she could have actually been in here with me, and she would have been. she would have been a happy dog because we didn't yell at each other one time.
0: I'll fix that on the next episode. You're a jagoff. Thanks, man. All right. John brings
1: his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together...